BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We've got a great episode today. David Tainter is here, my hey, colleague. Josh. Hey, how you doing? How Good, you thanks. Doing? How are you? So, so this week, we have Jeff Tubin. Who man, is, you've seen him on TV. Yeah, you've read him on in the CNN. New Yorker. He he's he's been a he, he he's a journalist, but he always he, his big focus is being a legal journalist because yes. he's a, he's a lawyer and a former prosecutor. One of the things that is is interesting about him for this conversation, and we're mainly going to be talking about the Trump Russia investigation and all the things involved with that, is that he. Uh, Jeff, as a young lawyer, was involved in the Iran-Contra investigation, which is a big independent counsel investigation in the mid-late 80s. He later wrote a book about it. So that is – that's some kind of key yeah. key experience that helps exactly, him yeah. kind of think some about of – pers- He brings that perspective to covering the, the Trump-Russia story today. Absolutely. And he also, he also, I think, wrote a book about – well, he wrote a book about that. And he also wrote a book about the Ken Starr investigation of Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And a, a fun thing that, that uh, not a lot – probably – not everybody remembers now, but about a decade ago, he wrote a profile of Roger Stone. Uh, it long before we were in the Trump uh, <laughs> yep. era, but that's yeah. also an interesting, an interesting uh, bit of background and perspective that that he brings to this. So you know, we're 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 starting the week, and I don't know about you, David, but well, first, I was just going to say. I, I need Grady's cold brew uh, ice co- or cold brew ice coffee yep. to to start start an episode of the Josh Marshall podcast. But like the whole staff is addicted to this stuff. <laughs> Listen, now. we've had Grady's pretty well stocked in the office for a few weeks now, and I don't think I've seen anyone use the hot coffee machine since then. Yeah, we've we're got only the, drinking Grady's. We've got this like really high tech coffee machine, and now <laughs> yeah. everybody's like above it. They the won't. Snow, they can't. There's be snow on the ground in New York City today, and we have Grady's in our cups. So yeah, e- even yeah, exactly, exactly. So here's so I have this thing I'm gonna. I want to. I want to. I want to tell you, David. Born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx, Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew. But you can have it delivered to your door no matter where you live. That's awesome. That is awesome. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press. No mess. No baristas. You save money too. You get thirty-six cups of gourmet cold brew for only thirty dollars. That's less than a buck a cup. They do that because not everybody remembers math <laughs> yeah, from when right. they were in high school or whatever. And shipping's free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. You know, here's the thing. I, I, I was um, I was talking to some folks over at Grady's last week. And and you guys, you you readers, people are, are ordering. And that is awesome. Yeah, they're finding out how how amazing uh, Grady's cold brew. So we is. don't want it all to ourselves, you know. We want yeah. we want others to enjoy the satisfaction of drinking Grady's too. Yeah, and and here's the thing, uh, people, you know, you should anybody who who in the future any advertiser that that 
uh, advertises on the Josh Marshall podcast, you know, please buy whatever it is they're selling because that helps. That helps us, Absolutely. and that's awesome and everything. But here's the thing. I actually drink this stuff. It's friggin' amazing. So, so really, uh, order it. It's uh, it, it it's good for us, but it'll be good for you because it's really good. I've been drinking this stuff for years. Absolutely. So, all right. So, so let's let's get down to get down to business. Talking to uh, uh, Jeff Tubin. We're gonna talk about Trump and Russia and and a lot of interesting stuff. So let's talk to Jeff Tubin. Okay, Jeff Tubin. Thanks for joining the Josh Marshall podcast. Delighted to be here. Yeah, well, I I got a, we got a million things to talk about. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about Trump and the whole uh, in uh, Russia investigation. And David and I were talking about this before we started, and kind of like where to start, right? Because if we're start if we're talking about the Russia thing from the ground zero, there's so many different dimensions of it. Well, and and the the thing that is so extraordinary is that there's a mystery at the heart of it is that is that uh Mueller has managed to establish the the only leak, leak fruit proof enterprise that I have ever encountered in Washington and I think that's a um you know that that's the 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 black hole but the but like real black holes it's it swallows everything right I mean we right. really don't know what he's really investigating and what he's likely to bring charges about so that 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 it, it makes it even more mysterious and broader than uh the subject might be right so here okay so here here is one one thing i wanted to talk with you about over the last almost 50 years now there have basically been as i see it four iconic independent counsel investigations. Now, they weren't all technically independent counsel investigations. Watergate had special prosecutors. There were ones on under the actual post-Watergate independent counsel st- statute, etc. But in any case, basically it is Watergate, which we all know about, then the Iran-Contra investigation under Lawrence Walsh in the, in the mid-late 80s, then we had the uh, Fisk slash Ken Starr investigation under uh, 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 with with uh, Bill Clinton, and now we have Mueller Trump. Now you were involved in one of those four, and that's the, that's around as, as a prosecutor, yes. exactly, exactly. And I'm you, pleased. To, I'm pleased that you realized I was too young to participate in Watergate. Uh, yeah, no, okay. believe me, believe me. <laughs> I, I, got, I, got, I, got, I got your history, man. Okay. All right. So so, and then you later wrote a book about it. I did, right, and then I wrote a book about the Clinton investigation, right, yes. right. Okay, so and, and I am writing a book about the right. Mueller investigation. So you, you've, you've, yeah, no, uh, yes, got it. All right. So here, so here's my question: Is you have been involved in one of the iconic four? So mm-hmm. what? Tell us about that experience and how does it inform your understanding of all of them, but particularly the one that's happening right now? Well, the. Um the other experience I've had, which informs my thinking about the Walsh matter, was being an assistant U.S. attorney, uh, which I was in Brooklyn later after my uh, experience with Walsh, but before I became a journalist. Right. And, um, you know, th- there is a significant difference between being a ordinary line prosecutor, as I was, and working on an Iran co- uh, uh, working on a special counsel investigation. The overwhelming focus on a single case is um, just different from federal 
normal federal law enforcement. And and it's it's problematic, I have to be honest with you, because one of the protections of civil liberties, I think, is that uh, prosecutors don't investigate individuals, they investigate crimes, and they have limited amount of time. And, and and just the the press of business limits how much you can investigate one single case or one single person. Now, um, what what happened, I think, in both the Walsh and Starr investigations is that they went on too long and that they um, wound up investigating ex- excessively or secondary uh, matters, secondary kind of, matters, yeah. and just you know not giving people peace of mind after a certain number of years. I mean, both of them went on for five or six years. You don't have cases in U.S. Attorney's Office that go on for that long. Um, I, I do think um, the the Mueller team is aware of that problem and and is aware of the need not to go on forever. But you know this is this is a problematic area of the the notion of setting off uh, independent investigations. I think it's worth it. I think they should be independent. But it, it's certainly a a an area of sort of federal law enforcement that, that that concerns me, and it's something I try to keep an eye on. If you remember during the independent, when the independent counsel law was in effect, there were atrocious abuses in lower profile cases, investigations like of Mike Espy yeah, that yeah. went on for years that were outrageous. And I was very happy to see the independent counsel law uh, expire and not be renewed. So... Anyway, that that's just sort of the frame in which I see these investigations. So, and 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 as you sort of said, that this this was one of the main critiques, certainly in the late '90s, about the independent counsel law, that it was, and this was, I guess, Scalia's. There was that Scalia dissent. Morrison v. Olson right. was the challenge to the constitutionality of the independent counsel law which was upheld by a vote of eight to one. And Justice Scalia dissented for, among other reasons, saying uh, this is unhealthy for civil liberties. And uh, a, lot of, uh, a, a lot of liberals uh, came around to his point of view. I, I never actually agreed with him on the constitutional issue, but I think some of his political points about it were, were, were both right and prescient. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly think that the... The Star investigation had all sorts of problems with it. But what people who were not following politics in the 90s may not realize is that, as you say, there were these secondary ones. Like it 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 seems like almost like half the Clinton cabinet at one point Henry or another. Cisneros, yeah, and, uh, and Mike Espy. I mean, they they, <clears throat> they were deeply, deeply unfair investigations. Right. And they went on forever. And yeah. it really was almost like a caricature where you've got the prosecutor. It's almost like he's got his own little law firm and kind of, you know. It's not like that. It yeah, is like that. And, and you also had prosecutor, you know, independent counsels who were not, uh, you know, people at the absolute top of their profession who could return to a, a, a comfortable sinecure. This was a good job for them, right. <laughs> and 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 they, you know, milked it for all it was worth, and it was re- it was really really unfortunate. Right. Well, I guess with with Mueller, I mean, Mueller, I think is seventy two or he is very he early seventy one. Okay. He, he he, Trump. And Bill Clinton were born within a few months of each other, which is, I don't know, some weird fact that may mean something. So is there anything else about that experience being involved in 
the Iran-Contra investigation, besides these issues of, of uh, possibly, you know, going on too long or unaccountability that informs your sense of, of this one? Yeah, I, the, the other thing is that the intersection of politics and law is so intricate and and on, on both sides of the ledger. It's intri- it's intricate legally because uh, at one level you're looking at possible um, impeachment, which has an entirely different set of standards than than federal law, and at the same time you're looking at misconduct that may be really appalling, but not a violation of any criminal law. And that intersection of law and politics uh, is, is something that's clearly, you know, that's clearly ple- pre- present in this investigation, as it is in all four of those iconic investigations. Right, right. So let me ask you that there's, there's this, there have been a, there's an ongoing conversation now about whether Congress should do something to legislatively protect Robert Mueller, since for the first time since Nixon, I think you've got a case where it seems quite plausible the president could fire the person. What do you what do you think of? Well, first of all, I think it will simply never happen. I mean, you know, there is a proposal by uh, Chris Coons, senator from Delaware. I forgot he is a Republican co-sponsor. I think it's the chair. Yeah, I I think it's one of the one of the were two Republicans from North Carolina and it may be Tillis. Um, first of all, I think they're constitutional problems. Um, just telling a president that he can't fire someone from the Justice Department, which works for him. But secondarily, it's it, this Congress is just never going to do that. I right. mean, the House, the, the House and Senate in Republican hands. You know, they, they don't. They don't pass many laws, right. and and in the unlikely event that they did pass one, I think Trump would likely veto it. So it's not going to happen. I think it's a valuable political exercise to raise the stakes of a dismissal to to point out that you know th- th- this would be a quantum difference from any previous. Um, firing that the president made, but in terms, and there's a long list. Th- there's a long <laughs> list, and and it it grows right, right, right. every day. It, it, but but in terms of uh, of actually stopping the president from doing it, I think the only check ultimately is political, yeah. not not legal. And I actually think that is unfortunately how it should be. I, I there's think, certain laws that we, we you can't. You can't legislate away the problem of a bad president. That, that, that's right, and and I also think you know the the independent counsel law or, or independent counsels as a rule have been you know dicey constitutional provisions because you know we do have three branches of, of government. We have executive, legislative, and uh, judici- judiciary, and to to create. An executive branch function that is not answerable to the head of the executive branch, you know, it may not be impossible, but right. it's certainly very difficult to and do it, in a constitutional the, way. At the end of the day, it seems like an abdication on, on the part of Congress, because if if Donald Trump were to fire Robert Mueller today, Congress could come back tomorrow and say, we are going to impeach you. We're going to remove you from office unless you undo this. Absolutely. Not that they are going to do that. Not that they are going to do that. But, you know, impeachment is 
a, a genuine check. It is part of separation of powers. And, uh, you know, it's relevant. It's relevant here. Uh, if, if he were, if Trump were to fire Mueller, um, I don't think he would be impeached. I know he would not be impeached by a Republican House, but he still may be impeached if the Democrats yeah. re, re, retake the House. I think that that remains a live possibility. So, so you know, there, there are checks and balances. Um, they're cumbersome. They're imperfect. But, you know, it, it is not an entirely unaccountable presidency. Can so, I, can I yeah, just ask absolutely. you guys, if, if Democrats do retake the House— after the election, how do you think Republicans' approach to the to the Mueller investigation just you know how do you think that changes if if Democrats do retake the House? I'm not sure it changes. I, I think you will actually see more and more attacks on on Mueller if the Democrats retake the House because sort of circling uh, the wagons, the, the circling thing. circling yeah. the wagons, and um, you know you already see. Uh, I mean, Trump. Trump is the most outspoken critic, but you also <laughs> say the uh, see others saying, you know, what's taking so long? You know, why is he investigating Ukraine? He's supposed to be investigating Russia. These cases have nothing to do with collusion. I mean, the, these are the the tropes that that you hear, and I expect you'll hear you'll hear that e- even more if the Democrats retake the House. And if they retake the House, it'll probably be because a lot of the people who were most inclined to criticize Trump lost their seats. So on the one hand, you might have a Republicans, you know, some kind of buyers or more thinking, man, associated with Donald Trump may not have been a great idea. But <laughs> yeah. on the other hand, you're going to get more of like a rump GOP that is more hardcore yeah. Trump. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. But it, the Republicans who remain will be from safe seats that are, you know, heavy, heavy, you know, one, you know, one, one of the defining factors of the Trump presidency is that, by and large, um, the Republican base has remained intact. I mean, it's 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 low. It's not 90 anymore. It's 80. But 80 is still pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. If you if you if you're a Republican member of the House, say, and you survive this November, you're going to say, like, dude, I'm never getting I'm <laughs> never going to get thrown out of office. Right. <laughs> Do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Here's another we're, here's another thing. We're going to go back in, into your bio. I don't know exactly when, maybe four or five years ago, you wrote a profile of Roger Stone. It's, it's it, you know. Is it longer it, than it, that? It's, it's it's 11 years ago. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like 2007. <laughs> I was going to off I saying know. two or three years ago. You know, when I was a kid, <laughs> my parents would sometimes say, you know, in conversation, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so in 15 years. And I think to myself, how can you not have seen someone in 15 years? That's, a, that's like forever. <laughs> yeah, it's a lifetime, and now, yeah. Like, I have friends I haven't seen in yeah, 15 yeah, years. So yeah. anyway, that's so yes, it is 11 years. But but Roger and I have also been in touch uh, over the years. So here, here's a funny thing. Like, a few, I don't know if you remember this, David, that, that um, I don't know, two or three years ago, we actually had Roger at a TPM party. Yeah, I saw that. So yeah. TPM has like... Uh, two or three times a year we have a we have an office party and you know we invite people whatever and this was before the uh trump rush before trump at all when roger's just this kind of colorful crazy person who's kind of out there um and uh i think god i think when we had a 
a, a, a webcast. I think we interviewed him once. So I invited him. He came and whatever. It kind of, you know. Got his picture taken yeah, just like everyone his, else. Yeah, yeah. We, have, we have a, a portrait photographer at our parties. So I have a, I've, I've had a, a, a tiny bit of interaction. But what's the story with Roger well, Stone? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the defining fact about Roger Stone is that you know, unlike virtually any other public figure that I have ever written about or even encountered, he wants you to think he's worse than he actually is. <laughs> right. You know, the, the the default mode for public figures is they want you to think well of them. Right. And he wants you to think that that he is a master of the dark arts. And the 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 challenge in in um, writing about Roger or figuring out Roger's role in anything is trying to figure out you know how much of what he's saying is is bs is is sort of puffing up his his sinister reputation you know interestingly he does seem somewhat worried about the Mueller investigation because and, and again I, I i don't want to take this too far afield you know that um Mueller, far afield as you want well, well Mueller has indicted 13 russians and three companies for essentially the social media conspiracy to uh, interfere with the election. What Mueller has not yet done, and I think he well may, is bring a case based on the hacking part of the uh, Russian attempt to help Trump. You know, the, the, the theft of John, John Podesta's emails, of the D Democratic National Committee emails. That case it appears to be under investigation. Roger is potentially a defendant in that case. Let me ask you this, though. It, it it seems to me almost impossible that he wouldn't, A, because he did with, with the fake news, basically, and the hacking, I mean, all of the fake, I guess he kind of made it as a, a conspiracy against the proper functioning of the U.S. government right. sort of thing, but hacking is just theft. I mean, the, the criminal right. predicates the, are much more the, clear, the, aren't exactly, they? Exactly, yes. I, I, that's well put. The criminal predicates are, 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 much, uh, are much more clear, uh, and um, as with the Russian social media case, the actual hacking perpetrators are likely to be outside the United States and perhaps outside the jurisdiction of the, of, you know, never, never, never going to show up in a U.S. court. But, you know, the, the open question about Roger is, you know, what was his connection to WikiLeaks? What was his connection to Grucifer, which was apparently the, the nom de guerre of the hacker right. or hackers themselves? And, um, the, the, you know, I think Roger is genuinely worried about, about being, being charged in, in that situation. I don't know if he's guilty. I don't know if he's being charged. But, you know, that, that's where his vulnerability lies. Well, this has been one of, the, one of the most interesting things about watching him during this process is that exactly as you say, he has for 40 years, his shtick has been – you don't know all the bad stuff I've done. Right. I, there's and no that limit. Was, and that was the piece that I wrote, yeah, starting yeah. when he was a teenager, right, right. working as you know as a dirty trickster in the 1972 Richard Nixon re-election campaign. Right, I mean, right. you know, he 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 was interviewed uh, in the Watergate uh, investigation. I'm not sure I realized. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. He had, he had a role in Watergate, and he also and he was literally a teenager at the time. I, he was either 19 or 20. Okay, I mean, he was good he, enough. He was very yeah. he was very young. And then, uh, you know, he, he claims to be behind the Brooks Brothers riot that shut down the recount in, in um, Miami-Dade County in, yeah, in, yeah. in 
December of 2000. Um, and uh, he, he claimed to have some role in uh, the fall of Elliot Spitzer with the prostitute. Right. So right. that was actually right. – that was the – that was the – what precipitated that my profile? Piece. Okay. okay, and in fact, I the 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 opening scene in that piece is when I go with Roger to the sex club in Miami, <laughs> where he claims to have known gotten to know the prostitute, which resulted in the best expense form I ever filed at the <laughs> uh, my years at the New Yorker. Yeah, um, oh, what yeah. a remnant say about uh, that? You know, yeah. I, I I well, actually, since you ask, you know, I, after I went. You know, you had to fill. You had to like get a temporary membership. It was very expensive. I had to <laughs> pay like three hundred dollars or something. But I didn't care. It wasn't my money. Um, and and so, but but the the owner of the club later found out I was going to write about it, and he called me up furious, and he said he threatened me. He said, you know, if you revoke your membership, if, if, it, it, no, he said <laughs> if you write about this. I'm going to say you were here at the club. I said, pal, I'm going to write about the fact that I'm here at the club. That's not much of a threat. Anyway, um, I, for, I have not returned, I'm pleased to say, but uh, it was an interesting experience. Well, one of the things I was just telling David about, about Stone is that at some point in the 90s, the National Enquirer, which now is like part of this, Trump, yeah, right. wrote this, did this expose. Dull campaign. This was when he was just about to have a senior role in Dole's campaign in 1996. So like a kind of like a, a Michael Corleone, almost getting legit again. Right. Yeah. And he had placed an advertisement yeah. in a swinging magazine. Yeah. And this was, of course, pre-internet. So it was like a, 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 you know, a newspaper thing. And he, of course, in great Roger fashion, claimed it wasn't him. <laughs> But there were pictures. Um, but there, there were, were all pictures, these pictures. I know. Right, right, right. I, I, it was, you know, it was one of those great areas. But where didn't he kind of like claim it wasn't him? Like kind of like sort of like he does with Guccifer. Like, oh, I never talked. But like, come on, exactly. I totally talked. It was, to him. It, was <laughs> right. it was basically. But like you got that. him to admit it because like his grandmother had died and he wasn't. What that was? I, I don't wasn't remember. Like I don't remember exactly the context. But but yes, that. that but it was. It, it, it did get him thrown off the Dole campaign. So. <laughs> At least uh, someone can look up the, that New Yorker piece. My recollection yeah. was that his excuse was that his grandmother was still alive in the mid in in the uh, mid nineties, and he didn't want to admit it. He didn't want to like shock the conscience of his grandmother. But now that she had passed away, like yeah, I'm a swinger. Yeah. It's, my, it's, it's my lifestyle. As, as he liked to say, I'm a libertarian and a libertine, <laughs> right. which I think right. both are both are accurate. You know, it's funny. We, we're here in uh, in the Chelsea neighborhood in New York, and. I don't think I've seen him anytime recently, but you know, probably ten years ago. Occasionally, I would see him walking up Sixth Avenue, in in one of these not just three piece suits, but you know, some of these like real dandyish people have like nine piece suits, like all the you know, oh, kind yeah. of all this kind of with a cigar, and he always had a couple young male acolytes, like he was pontificating to, and it was always I just think I you know I. He wears, That's, he wears capes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, He's based it's, in Florida mostly now, right? Yeah, he's mostly in Florida. Yeah. He was just on Instagram with his grandson smoking cigars and calling Sam Nunberg a cocaine addict. That was the last time I saw him oh, was pop up. <laughs> so he's anti-Nunberg now? I guess so. Well, yeah. I think so. I mean, <laughs> Or maybe it, that's, it, a, that's a plus well, for Nun him. Well, Nunberg yeah. was, was a protege of sorts, and, <laughs> and I think they had a falling out. Okay. So what, what, I, what, I, was, what I was trying to say before was that one of the interesting things about watching Stone in this process has been that he's kind of doing both. On the one hand, he's still trying to kind of 
make you think that he was involved in some bad shit. But as you say, he's also kind of worried that he's going to get indicted. That so is, that's right. And, and, and I think that's, um, I think that's significant. I think, you know, Roger, um, you know, it's all well and good to brag about, you know, Watergate 20, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever it was. And, and, you know, where he's safely outside the statute of limitations, you know, here you you have this very active criminal investigation, which, um, you know, you know, so much, so much of the history of the 2016 election was based on the premise that Hillary was going to win anyway. So I think part of the sloppiness of all these people affiliated with Trump was that, in part, they were just reckless. But also, it's like, what difference is that? We're not going to win anyway. No one's going to care. So who cares if we're conspiring with WikiLeaks? Who cares if we're meeting with Russian lawyers in Trump Tower trying to get dirt on Hillary Clinton? It's not going to matter anyway. Right, right, right. And no one will ever look back at this and you know i think comey's behavior can be explained by that uh, I, I mean there is just uh, barack obama's behavior can be explained like that and, and i think roger's carelessness during the campaign was also indicative of this whole trump thing is basically a lark mm-hmm. and uh we'll all wind up making money later but I'm certainly not worried about Donald Trump actually becoming president of the United States. Now, you just mentioned Comey. So I assume what you were talking about there is that the the FBI's seeming, I don't know, low-intensity focus. Like, okay, we're concerned, but we're not going to – concerned about this stuff we're seeing on the counterintelligence front with Russia and Trump. But, like, Trump's not going to be president, so let's not – you know, we don't right. want to – overdo it because all that kind of stuff is that what you're no what's, what's, I, okay. no what i was what i was specifically referring to is two things one is you know comey's press conference in the summer where you know completely without precedent in american law enforcement history he announces no prosecution and then trashes the hell out of the target <laughs> right. uh which which i interpreted as a political effort to protect him with the Republican Congress. It's that, yes, I'm giving her a pass, but I'm going to trash her, which I think was entirely inappropriate on Comey's part. And then even worse, um, you know, a few days before the election, as, as everyone remembers, he announces that the investigation has been reopened, um, completely counter to Justice Department policy, uh, which says you should not take action that interferes with, uh, you know, the, an election, the, in an election in, process, in the yeah. thirty in the thirty days before, and both of those, um, I think, were based on Comey's unspoken, but I'm sure real assumption that well, Hillary's going to win anyway, so I might as well protect myself with the House Republicans. And 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 assuming a she's going to win, ergo I'm going to be the FBI director when she's president, and this will kind of show that I'm legit exactly. and I'm not owned by I her. Have to, I have to hedge my bets right. politically. Right. Okay. So let's get on to the to the main the main question we are all dealing with today is that you mentioned okay, so you mentioned before that you know, to our great, and I'm sure yours too, as a journalist, you know, dismay, this investigation does not leak. Right. Um, that may be, that's probably great in civic and law enforcement terms, but it's, it's, it's a huge bummer um, for, for journalists. What is your best guess? What 
what is the mystery inside the black box? You know, I, t- to use the three words you're never allowed to say on cable news, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think there are several possibilities. I, I, I think without question, you know, he is building a case based on obstruction of justice, uh, the events leading up to and surrounding Comey's dismissal. I mean, there, there is no question that that is and, – and we can talk about, you know, in, in what context because, you know, whether a president can be indicted or – or an impeachment report. I mean, but but clearly that is a major focus of the investigation. I mean, that was what prompted his hiring. Remember, it was the firing of. Comey. And it would almost seem like if a president can obstruct justice, Trump obstructed. I mean, it's just what we know publicly, almost. I I I, I agree, <laughs> and, and 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 you know, there there is this debate that I've been having with Alan Dershowitz and others have backed him up. Is that whether you know, the, given the fact that the president has the right to fire the FBI director, can he do it for any reason he likes? And I completely think the answer is no, but there is at least an argument out there that the, the, the answer is yes. Um, the, the, the other, you know, major, major question to which I am, uh, you know, much less confident about the answer is, you know, the, the, the merger of two stories, one is the obvious Russian attempt to help Trump win the presidency, whether it's through hacking, whether it's through um, social media, um, whether it's through you know just face-to-face contact, as in the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. That's one story. The other story is Trump's obvious and otherwise inexplicable affection for Putin. His you know his his endless you know, kowtowing towards him, saying nice things. And and the question that has not been answered is, were those two stories connected? Is there some reason why uh, Trump and the the, the Trump campaign and the Russian um, government effort to help him, um, you know, in the word that has become so uh, thrown about, colluded together, or was there some sort of illegal conspiracy between the two? There are suggestions that there were certainly the June twentieth meeting is one is, is one, you know the 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 main example that we know about. But the question is, was there something more? So what's your? Well, I guess you don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. You know, a lot of it's not just the evidence that's not public. It's the kind of evidence that is never going to be made public unless you know Mueller decides it. Intercepts. Right. You know, I, going back to my Iran-Contra experience, dealing with the NSA and trying to, you know, liberate uh, information from them was almost hilariously difficult. I remember at one point, the uh, there was a set of documents that that you know that we wanted access to or North wanted access to in the in the period leading up to the trial, Oliver North, and the the, the general counsel came back and said. Those documents are so secret, no one is allowed to look at them. <laughs> it's like, what kind of a document is that that right. no one can look at? And 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 that that was the kind of answer we were used to getting. Right. So you know, I am certain that you know the, the Mueller's team has been looking at, at the NSA, and I don't know what they found. If Do anything. you think I, one question I have is is if I remember. Uh, Walsh had been a judge from Oklahoma? No, he was from Oklahoma originally. He was a judge here in New York, federal federal district judge in the 50s. Got it, okay. Briefly, yeah. And then he left to be deputy attorney general under Dwight Eisenhower. 
That's how old he, he yeah, didn't was. Didn't he die only in the last decade? Yeah, yeah, he died at 100. Okay, He my lived God. to be 100, right. yeah. So here's my question, though. I mean, Robert Mueller was, aside from J. Edgar Hoover, the longest-serving director of the FBI, which obviously runs counterintelligence in the U.S. So do we think he might have a little more pull, basically? It just, just kind of... I have no, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, not just pull, but institutional knowledge. Right. I mean, you right. know, the, the the FBI is a is an opaque organization in the best of circumstances. Um, but ev- but the FBI is 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 really split into two parts. Um, the the part that most people are familiar with and the part that I, you know, as an assistant U.S. attorney worked with were the people who were involved in criminal investigations. National you know, police the, force, yeah, basically. The, the, yeah, that the, they do white-collar crime, they do mafia, they do terrorism. That's a, you know, the, the there is a whole other part of the FBI, which is counterintelligence. They are the people who keep an eye on the Russian embassy, who, you know, they are the domestic counterpart to the CIA. Post 9-11, you know, Mueller became head of the uh, FBI, like I think the week before 9-11. Yeah, crazy. And, and, yeah. and he, you know, stayed for the following decade, decade plus. That was the period when the counterintelligence side and the criminal side of the FBI started working together more. So he is really going to know a lot about how, and, and Andrew Weissman, who, who was one of the lead prosecutors, uh, was general counsel to the FBI during some of this period. So, I mean, it, sure I it's a that. very, it's, it, it, they, they are, now, that doesn't necessarily help them with the National Security Agency, but it does give them a, a big leg up in knowing, like, where to look for stuff. Have you ever met or interviewed Mueller? Uh, I've met him, um, and I, I, I had a very weird interview with him um, in connection with my Patty Hearst book. Oh, okay. uh, when I um, when Patty Hearst applied for a pardon from Bill Clinton in uh, late 2000, right before he left office, one of the customs is you um, the the pardon office in the Justice Department asked the U.S. Attorney's Office that prosecuted the person to weigh in on the question of whether they was should get a pardon. Was he the U.S. Attorney? He was the U.S. Attorney in San Francisco in 2000. And oh, in 2000. In okay, 2000. I thought like in 1974 no, 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 or something. No, no, no. Okay, got it, got it. And, and he wrote a scathing letter about Patty Hearst saying oh. she was an unrepentant criminal and didn't deserve a pardon. And I quoted that in my book, um, and I called him about it. And he said, in so many words, you know, the staffers wrote it. I signed it. I don't really remember much about it. But uh, it's kind of weird. It is, but anyway, it's it's a weird sort of merger of my world. For a guy who only only wears white shirts to not sort of ruffle feathers, it seems like a not a careful moment for him. Yeah. What can yeah. I say? What can I say? So, uh, huh? Okay. So, so, I mean, I'll tell you where where I have I have been for the last year and a half in this consistent pattern of both seeming, you know, being pretty out front on the story in the sense of like, this is real, something, you know, something really bad may have happened here, but also not really believing it. Like, it's just, just, it, it is just so hard for me to imagine that even the people involved here, many of whom are certainly venal crooks, no question, Manfort, Trump, all these kind of guys, do you really, like, conspire with a foreign government to get elected 
I, I, you know, it, it's only become more believable to oh, me absolutely. As, as we've absolutely. seen it. And, and you look, I mean, out of all the people in the world to be campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, you know, yes, as has been endlessly pointed out, he wasn't campaign chairman for the whole campaign, but he was campaign <laughs> chairman during the campaign. This guy who is, you know, his owes his entire fortune though it was in jeopardy by yeah. the summer of 2016 to you know Ukrainian strongmen who are under the thumb of Vladimir Putin and he owes them money so is there anyone in the world more likely to um, conspire to collude with the Russians yeah, to and, be controlled and, to blackmailable. Be controlled. and and, yeah. and what is and and, and with Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr., is there anyone in that group who would say, my goodness, that would be wrong? <laughs> you know? No. I mean, that, that, you know, I mean, remember when WikiLeaks started, you know, Donald Trump was, I love WikiLeaks. Yeah, yeah. That WikiLeaks was stealing those documents, committing a crime. Yeah. And and Trump was saying, I love, I love WikiLeaks. So, I mean, I, it, it's only become more plausible to me as as time has passed. No, absolutely. And I, I would say, I mean, the, the other thing you were saying about, um, you know, with Jared Kushner or, or Donald Trump Jr. or whatever, the one thing about that, uh, that June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower, that it doesn't excuse anything, but Don Jr. is clearly a, a fool who has no knowledge of the world of spy craft and stuff. I'm not saying he shouldn't have known better, but I am willing to believe that he might have been in deeper than he realized. Paul Manafort, I don't believe it. You work abroad in a country like that. You you, you are you talk to people and spy agents. You know, there's no way he didn't know what was up there. But 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 think about who attended that meeting. Think about how many people attended that meeting. You know, I mean, you you run the giant empire of TPM. I bet it's difficult for you to gather, like, your top three people for anything just because yeah. people are busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got the three top people in the campaign to meet with this woman because it was such an interesting priority, such a, such a valuable thing. And if you believe that they never told Donald Trump oh, yeah. about it, th- that's – preposterous well, especially, as, as yeah. Steve Bannon himself has pointed out. Well, of course, I mean clearly Donald Trump Jr has lived his whole lives his whole life in the in the shadow of his dad wants to please his dad. So the idea that he's like, yeah, we found out that this lady may have the kind of the, you know, the silver bullet right. to take down Hillary Clinton. Then, I want to I don't want to tell dad about that. And of yeah. course, would be And of course there was Trump previewing his upcoming speech about sort of major dirt, right? Yeah, no. So the, the, and when the and when the and when the meeting doesn't go as planned, the speech never yeah, takes exactly, place. Exactly. Well, and the thing was, okay, so I I have been for the last year been trying there was that line during the campaign. Well, they brought in Manafort because he he wrangled delegates for Ford in 1976. So he's the perfect guy. 20 years earlier. Yeah. 20 years earlier like 40 years earlier. It's 1976. Oh, 76. Yeah. Oh this is God. what you 40, said at the beginning of the episode. I know. You're your you're dad I, now. A, yes, yeah. I, I have turned into my dad. Yeah, 20, exactly. 40 years earlier. Yeah, and, yeah and, that, and, that expertise really, how important was yeah, that? Yeah, and clearly the <laughs> everything about politics and the Republican Party is different from what... So that, so that explanation makes zero sense. Yeah. He's brought in through Tom Barrick, 
who never any kind of clear explanation how that happens. He's working for free. Now we have this just in the last um, just in the last week uh, through and through a sentencing mem- memorandum that has to do with this other kind of secondary player. Now Gates. At, you know, in in September, October is is still in communication with this guy, Clemenic. Right. So, what do you make of? Is that does that well, I mean, advance it, things? Well, is, it, it it's it's potentially. I mean, it, it's significant because, as I said, the the question, the, the the core question for the collusion investigation is: Does the Russian effort to help Trump and the Trump campaign have any? Connection is there an overlap? Is there a, you know a coordination, conspiracy, collusion, whatever you want to call it, between those two entities, the Trump campaign and the Russian effort? You know, a, a, a contacts between Gates, who is a senior official in the campaign, and someone who is affiliated with Russian intelligence is certainly of interest. Now. Unless you know what they were talking about, the substance of what they were talking about, you know, you can't claim that it's incriminating, but it's it's, it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> right. It's not good. <laughs> so so, well, that's because I, I I guess the argument is, or what we've heard in the past is, uh, Manafort's Manafort's trying clearly trying to make himself whole get his money back, get his money safe because of his new fame as a Trump campaign manager. But that doesn't mean he's doing anything. I mean, that kind of makes sense as just a, a wheeler dealer. And right. Stuff a lot like of that. people join political campaigns for their later marketability. Right. Exactly. So and, and Kalimnik was Manafort's kind of fixer slash deputy in in Kiev. I, I always say the old the way you're not supposed to say it now, Kiev. Right. Um, but 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 all the more reason why it's curious and suspicious that Manafort is the campaign chair because his so his crazy. his right it's hand. So you know, I mean, Gates was the right hand man, but you know, the the almost right hand yeah. man was someone affiliated with Russian intelligence. Right. I mean, come on. I mean, that's that's a a seriously suspicious fact. Right. Right. So, okay. So, what do you what, what did you make of that? CNN had a report uh, last week that said that with Rick Gates, that Mueller's people told Rick Gates, like, we have already got Manafort. We don't need you for that. So, if you're thinking that's going to get you out of you know a long prison term, it's not. We need you for the collusion stuff. Now we know that when he did make a deal, I think. Somehow or another in the charging, you know, the deal document or whatever, it basically says you'll only do a year in prison. It's not a promise, but it's sort of predicted. I mean, you know, one of of the uh, distinctive factors about federal law enforcement in the United States is that cooperators are rewarded enormously. There is a tremendous benefit to flipping and being the person who doesn't go to trial and who agrees to testify against the others, even if the others wind up testifying and wind up pleading guilty. Right. So so I, I would think that Gates has a very good chance of, of looking at no prison time as a result of this deal. So if that is true, that they basically said to him, we don't really care what you tell us about about Manafort's financial crimes, you need to produce on the collusion front. I, I mean, I think 
I, I, I think that's not exactly what was said. I don't okay. believe I don't believe that Mueller's people would have phrased it that way. They might have said, "Look, you know, Manafort is dead in the water anyway." I mean, which he is. I mean, there, I know an undefensible case when I see it. I mean, if you look at the indictment of Manafort and Gates, every paragraph practically begins, Manafort and Gates did X, Manafort and Gates did Y. If Gates is going to testify that they did all that <laughs> stuff, and, and it's all documentary stuff about tax evasion, I mean, like, what's the defense? Yeah. I mean, what's the defense to, like, w- we did pay taxes? I mean, it, it's just not, I, I think it's an undefend- indefendable case, and I think Manafort will wind up pleading guilty. He's, right. he's doing a few motions now to try to get the indictment thrown out, which I think are you know sort of hail marys, but but ultimately I think he's gonna he's gonna wind up pleading guilty. All that being said, I think you know the more the more likely conversation was look you know we know you, you you're gonna help us get Manafort dead bang he's gone Th- that case is over he's he's probably gonna never go to trial anyway. But that's not your only job here. We want to know everything about your connections with um, the Russians. Uh, which I think is entirely appropriate for Mueller's people to say. So here, here's the la- here's the last question, uh-huh. and this is the one that I've been thinking about a lot. We know that Paul Manafort, one of Paul Manafort's business partners, people he was in business with, was this guy Oleg Deripaska. Uh, yes. Okay. He has been largely prevented from coming into the United States for the last decade plus because the State Department believes he has extensive ties with organized crime. Not not the strangest thing for a Russian oligarch, but a lot of oligarchs can come here. He can't. Okay. So he Manafort apparently owed him about $20 million. Not not a not a good position no. to be in. Okay. Yeah. So let's assume that he he is he does have ties to organized crime. Okay. And and Manafort owes him twenty million dollars. Let is let's also assume that there's some level of collusion, some some bad stuff that Manafort did on that front. Is it possible to think that that prison is not the only thing that Paul Manafort is worried about? Or is that sure. just conspiratorial sure. and crazy? Absolutely. I mean, these are these people are dangerous. I mean, you know, that's a scary world over there. You know, the you know, one reason why Manafort was able to charge so much money for for political consulting in Ukraine is because it was dangerous. <laughs> and, and, it's like and, an assassination. No, it's, it's not it, like you yeah. know doing a Senate race in Iowa. I mean, it's <laughs> it's 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 like a seriously dangerous place yeah. for people in politics. And, and so, and in part because of people like Deripaska, right? Uh, th- th- that you know these people are you know not. You know Harvard Business School case studies. Right. I mean, they are they are they are you know have ties to the underworld. Now, I do, do. I really think you know Paul Manafort is in danger of being killed. I doubt it, but it it is certainly. I mean, I think one reason why he is so he was so anxious. Remember, he offered Deripaska briefings on the campaign is to ingratiate himself because he owed him all this money, right, right. which is yet another reason why he was such a ridiculous choice to be a campaign chairman <laughs> right. because he was both literally and figuratively in debt right. to these Putin-aligned interests. Well, obviously, you can. we can say, look, 
Paul Manafort's not going to get killed in, in Northern Virginia or Washington. That's not the same as saying, like, if you're Paul Manafort, like, oh, I'm not going to get killed. I'm not, I have nothing to worry about. How does someone like in the case like this as a, as a, as a prosecutor, what does a prosecutor, you know, if, if, if you're going to turn evidence against like the Bonanno crime family, we have witness protection and that seems to have a perfect record, but this is a little different. What can, what can a prosecutor say in a case like this? You know, I, I mean, it's sort of an either-or situation. You either offer witness protection or you don't. I mean, Paul Manafort is so famous at this point, it's preposterous <laughs> to think that he could, like, you know, move to Arizona like everybody in the witness protection John program. Springfield, our new neighbor, uh, yeah. who looks just uh, like Paul Manafort. Uh, right. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and, and I think, you know, you could offer protection from certain you know, you know, in certain circumstances and certain trips. But, but I mean, one reason why... Um, the government has been so hard-ass with Manafort about bail is that he is aligned with these people who are scary criminals, you know, and, and you know, most white-collar cases, you know, the notion that someone would, like, fly a helicopter in and spirit <laughs> them out is absurd. Right, right. But it's less absurd when you are tied to people who, who have genuine criminal connections. Right. Right, right. All right. So, so not, not crazy to think that this could figure into. Well, it certainly could figure into Manafort's thinking. Right. I mean, look. I mean, you know, I know enough about criminal defendants. They can think of a million reasons why they shouldn't plead guilty and why the government is just being unfair to them. I right. mean, you know that that is that is what they spend most of their time doing. Right. And, and I'm sure Manafort is thinking, you know, what am I supposed to do? I got these crazy Russians after me. I got Mueller after yeah. me. But you know, ultimately, it's like the answer is too bad. Yeah. If you committed yeah. crimes, you're going to have to <laughs> right. pay the price one well, way I guess or the, another. The worst possible thing for Manafort is if there were no there was no collusion at all. So there's nothing he can say. I mean, that would be that would be that that would be that would be that you know that and and that's the risk that the last person to plead guilty always takes. Right, is that you know one of the great pieces of leverage you have as a prosecutor is you say like don't be last because all defense lawyers know that if you're the last person in a conspiracy, you got nothing. You know, unless you're a member of like the Bonanno family where there's just nothing but crimes. Right, right, but. You know, if if it's you know white collar case with a discreet bribery Ponzi scheme, whatever, um, you know they usually don't have a life of crime in right. which to uh, flip on a, a, a bunch of different right. people. Right, right, and and you know the the parallel development to the great reward that the system offers to cooperators is the penalty for going to trial, and Manaf- Manafort is looking at. In effect, a life sentence if he goes to trial. Yet another reason he's going to plead guilty, I think. So you have no doubt at the end of the day, there's not going to be a Paul Manafort trial. I, I wouldn't say no doubt. After but, the election of 2016, <laughs> I am not predicting things with 100% certainty. But I think the overwhelming likelihood is that he pleads guilty. Got it. All right. Jeff Tubin, thank you so much for coming on the Josh Marshall podcast. We totally appreciate it. You're, 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 you're in the New Yorker. You're on CNN. Telling I'm us, an, an itinerant content provider. That's yes. what I am. Yes, that is, that is, a, that is a, good way to, a good way to put it. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much to Jeff Tubin. That was a fascinating conversation. Yeah, that was great. I really, I, I, I learned a lot of it. I'm very, I was very interested in, in 
Jeff's perspective because, you know, being a prosecutor, you, you a former prosecutor, and certainly having, having uh, you know, written a book about m- multiple independent counsel investigations, just a fascinating perspective. As long as we're on the, on, the, on the subject of fascinating perspectives, don't forget that this episode of the Josh Marshall Podcast was brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Thanks, David. Awesome Thanks. show. See you next week. All right. Bye-bye.